Let's pray. Dear God, we, uh, we're excited about uh, just a fresh year, a fresh, uh, fresh chance to watch your faithfulness unfold in our lives. We're praying that, uh, that you would just speak to us, that you would glorify yourself, uh, that you would reveal yourself to us. God, we want to know you more. We're gathered here because we are uh, just hungry to, to better understand your love better understand the fellowship that you've offered us. And so we pray that you would uh, just reveal that to us. God, help us to have ready hearts and uh, just, uh, just have your way with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, before we like officially dive in, um, there's a couple things I just wanted to maybe go over. Because on Wednesday, because just kind of given an, an overview, uh, first Wednesday night of the year, some of that sort of stuff. Um, so Dad alluded to it uh, over the past couple Sundays, but basically what we're going to do on Wednesday nights this year is we're going to cover uh, more or less a book of the Bible every week. And so we're going to be trying to just see the Bible in a big picture overview and really get, uh, just kind of get the Bible at two different speeds because uh, it's, you know, the Bible's an interesting, it's an interesting book and like all great books, um, it's great to stop and ponder the details, but it's also important to keep the overall narrative in mind, right? And so we want to do both. And so that's why on Sunday mornings, we take it at a little bit of a slower pace, but on Wednesday nights, we're moving a little bit faster because we want to see the big picture, but also the little details. And, um, you know, and they're both important, but we can't lose sight of either one, especially, you know, like you get into the New Testament and you can, uh, you can just, just lock in on each verb and how it translates from Greek to English. And I think there was a, there was a pastor in England back in the 1800s who spent, I think, 15 years going through the book of Romans and only stopped because he died, right? Um, And so, you know, you can do that. And, and, and that's, that's legitimate, but we also need to get the entire Bible. And so, you know, as part of that, we're doing the through the Bible in a year. And so it's just, as it's the first Wednesday night, I wanted to, before we specifically dive into the book of Genesis, just give us a couple thoughts maybe on going through the Bible in a year. And, um, and you know, this, this section of Wednesday nights, we're kind of shifting gears just slightly because instead of we're doing, you know, the book overview things and be a little bit different. So I'm still trying to figure out uh, what that looks like as far as teaching in a way that doesn't so much feel like, uh, you know, it's like you're in Bible college and this is through the Bible 101 or something. I, you know, I want it to still feel like we're gleaning from the Bible and not just learning about the Bible. But along the way, there's also some practical nuts and bolts that I think might be helpful. So, um, so if, you're, if you took one of the reading plans and if you're going to try and read through the Bible in a year this year, um, just a couple things that I think would be helpful. Uh, number one is uh, in terms of time, it takes about 11 minutes a day. So if you're trying to sort through, you know, do I have the time to commit and all that, it's about 11 minutes a day. Um, that'll, at an average pace, get you through the Bible in a year. Um, I would recommend very strongly that you do it in the mornings, if possible, um, uh, for a couple reasons. One, it takes you about half as long to do it in the mornings as it does to do it in the evenings. Because if you read the Bible in the evenings, uh, the Lord will still speak to you, but you'll be reflecting on everything that you didn't do that day, right? So you kind of read it and repent and read it and repent and so oh, I should have learned that and I shouldn't have done that and uh, it takes you about twice as long. And so if you read the Bible in the morning, uh, you're preparing for the day. If you read the Bible in the evening, you're oftentimes correcting for the day. So if you have the time, 
at all in the morning. Uh, I, would, I would really just recommend and encourage you guys to just to take that time. Carve out 11 minutes in the morning. Um, you know, we live in a pretty distracted world. So if you can, set it up so that you are in the Word before you're in the world. Set it up so that you're in the Word of God before you're reading the news and before you're checking stuff, right? Just kind of get yourself set for the day in the Word of God. And, and that'll uh, not only help you stay on track, that'll only not, not only help you actually get the readings done, that will also help you just in terms of just practical living it out. Um, talk about it with other people. You know, sometimes we read it and it's kind of just like, oh, I skimmed it and I'm done for the day. But if we want the Word to change us, if we, if we want to watch the Word of God transform our lives, then it's going to have to do more than just go through our heads. It's going to have to penetrate into our hearts. And so one of the best ways to do that is to be processing it, to be thinking about what did it, you know, okay, I read it, great. Sometimes we'll say, you know, as you read the Bible, you want to say, what does it say, what does it mean, and what does it mean to me? Okay, and if you're processing, what does it mean, what does it mean to me, one of the best ways to do that is to discuss it, to talk about it, you know, so when we're coming together at church, right, during the break, you know, ask people how you can pray for them, but there's a good chance that somebody you're talking to might be going through and might have read the same chapters you did, and so you can say, hey, you know what, I was reading, did you notice, I just thought this was so cool this week, that, you know, God's talking to Abraham and he says this, or, or I was watching this thing and, and I just thought it was cool and I thought it might encourage you, or it encouraged me, um, so don't, you know, so talk about it. Pray, and as you're reading the Bible, ask the Lord to speak to you. And then expect the Lord to speak to you, okay? So if you're showing up to read God's Word, God has said, hey, I will speak to you through my Word. So then be ready. If you want to be ready to hear what God is saying, I'd recommend bringing a pen or a pencil, right? If God's going to tell you something, it's probably worth remembering. It's worth writing down. Um, if you're looking at it, and you're looking at the plan, and honestly, I kind of do this, you look at it and you think, wow, that's a lot of Old Testament stuff before we get to the New Testament, right? And I love the Old Testament, I really do. Um, but if you're looking at it and you're like, I'd kind of like to balance out Leviticus with maybe some of the Gospels or something, um, there are just, if you want, it's not extra credit, but whatever, if you, wanna, if you want some extra reading, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament, and there are 260 work days in a year. So if on Monday through Fridays you read one chapter a day out of the New Testament, you get through the whole New Testament in a year. So I'm just throwing that out. Uh, that's not, I won't ask anybody if you're doing it. But, uh, but just if you're like, hey, I want, some, I want to go through the New Testament a little more. I want to be a little more aware of you know, Paul's letters and the Gospels and all that. If you read them Monday through Friday, you'll get through them. All right. Um, and if you get off and, you know, you miss a couple weeks or whatever. Don't beat yourself up. Just pick up on whatever calendar day you're on and go for it, right? And don't say, oh, I got to read, you know, 30 chapters or whatever. Just pick up on whatever day it is and start reading, okay? And the Lord will speak to you right there. So that's just kind of the, the nuts and bolts of if you're going through the Bible in a year, all right? But uh, specifically for Wednesday nights, we're looking at going through a book a week. And so as we're doing that, we want to try and do a couple things. We want to understand each book as an individual, but we also want to understand each book as it connects to all the others, okay? Because that's important. We're looking at a book that is written by God, but simultaneously it's written by God working through the pens and the minds 
of human beings. And so each book is divine. Each book ties together perfectly. But each book has its own personality. Each book has its own style. Each book is emphasizing different points and different things and trying to give us different points of application. And so we want to sort of understand that. But then also as we're going through each book, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, we want to be looking for Jesus Christ. Right? The Old Testament is full of Jesus Christ. And we want to be looking for him. We want to have our eyes open. We want to be saying, okay, where is Christ? How am I supposed to be looking forward to Christ through the Old Testament? Um, Because it's there. It's so there. And it becomes, uh, it's really almost, it's almost like a treasure hunt where once you start to see it a couple times, it's like, oh, wait, okay, wait, where else could I find it, right? Um, And then lastly, as we're going through, we also want to look at prophecies that uh, are relevant because there's a lot of them in the Bible. Somewhere around a fourth of the Bible is prophecy, all right? And so it's worthwhile to look at prophecy. What does the Bible say? Some of that prophecy has been fulfilled, and we'll look at some of that. A lot of that has to do with references to Jesus himself and his first coming. A lot of that's unfulfilled, okay? And there are things we should be looking for as human beings. There are things we're looking for uh, prophetically that, you know, as I read the news today, I'm filtering through a prophetic lens. We know there's things that we look at prophetically and we know will happen at some point in time. We don't know for sure when. Okay, we know that at some point in time, Russia and Iran and Turkey are going to form an alliance. We don't know for sure when, but we know it's going to happen. Well, incidentally, we know that Russia and Iran are pretty chummy. We know that Turkey is no longer pursuing uh, getting into the EU. They're much more interested in being a Middle Eastern style nation. And so as you look at that, they also need money, they need weapons, they need oil. So there's, there's a stage being set for it because there's prophecies about Russia, Iran, and Turkey coming together in an alliance against Israel. So we're watching for these things. So I, you know, I want us to be aware of these things. We're watching for the return of Christ. We're watching for different signs that the Bible tells us to be aware of. Um, and so we, we want to be diligent to pay attention to those. But also, lastly, um, I want us to be looking at types. And... Uh, you know, specifically as it pertains to the first coming of Christ, okay, there's a lot of prophecies we want to look at, but there's also a lot of types. And by types, what I mean is um, when the scripture gives a prophecy, it's very often, okay, um, it's sort of multidimensional. It's multi-layered, And so sometimes it can be confusing even to read prophecy today because it's like, wait, some of that sounds like it's been fulfilled. Some of that sounds like it hasn't been fulfilled. Okay, and it's almost like you're looking at a mountain range, and you can tell there's a lot of mountains there, but you're too far away to see which ones are in front and which ones are in back, all right? And so there's prophecies that we're looking at where we're going to say, okay, this is talking about Jesus' first coming, and there's this sort of thing, but there's also types um, that, are, that are not prophecies, all right? It's not the Lord saying, hey, this is going to happen, but it's the Lord demonstrating a picture of what's coming by what happens. All right, and we see this, uh, we'll get into hopefully uh, at least one tonight, but um, what we're looking at is the Lord saying, hey, I'm, I'm giving you kind of a shadow, kind of a, a little bit of an unveiling, and it's not, comp- it's not like a perfect prophecy, because we're still talking about sinful people and some of that, but it has a lot of relevance, and, um, and it's just very encouraging to watch other people's lives be a picture of Jesus Christ, because that's really our goal as Christians, is to be a picture of of Jesus Christ. And so we get to see that example in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then we can be encouraged to, to live that example as well. Um, but all that to say, that takes us to the book of Genesis, all right? Genesis is 
the introduction to the entire Bible. In a lot of ways, it's a long introduction to the book of Exodus, all right? Um, Genesis is written by the guy Moses. Exodus is really Moses' story. And so Genesis is Moses giving us the intro to say, okay, here's, what, here's what's sort of leading up. Here's who we're talking about, all right? The book of Genesis means beginnings. So if you're ever trying to remember where's the book of Genesis at, it's at the beginning, right? That's, it's or anywhere else, that would just be pretty darn confusing, right? Like, it's the book of beginnings, so it's at the beginning, all right? So the book of Genesis, um, if you're trying to, if it helps you to break down in sort of a pattern, okay, Genesis is going to give us four big events, and then it's going to give us the stories of four significant people, all right? So it's the beginnings. It's the beginnings of the world. It's the beginnings of sin. It's telling us the history of all these different things. So we get the, the history of the beginning of the world, the history of sin, the history of God's promise to deal with sin, the history of languages, the history of nations. And then it starts to narrow down and it says, okay, the Lord is going to give us a history of a specific nation. All right? And that's the nation of Israel because through the nation of Israel comes God's plan to save the world. And so we're going to look at four events, and then there's going to be four significant people. So the four events in order are creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. <clears throat> so creation, and we're not going to necessarily go over each of these super in-depth tonight, but um, the creation account starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's been said before, you know, if you can accept that verse right there, Everything else that follows in the Bible completely makes sense. If you can't, if you get hung up right there, nothing else is going to make sense, okay? Because if God can create the heavens and the earth, then any story about a man being swallowed by a fish, any story about miracles happening, any story about really anything is completely plausible. If you can't accept that, none of it makes any sense. So it starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, interestingly, so Genesis then gives us the entire creation account of how God made the world, all right? And... Uh, it's a very literal historical account. It's not giving us a metaphor. It's not giving us a legend or a myth. It's giving us a history of the world. And so in seven actual days, God creates all of creation. And then, uh, well, in six days, he creates it all. On the seventh day, he rests. And in that pattern, he sets up for us a picture of how we're supposed to function. All right? But, um, but what's interesting, specific, so, uh, you know, you can take a lot of time on this and, and discuss creation and evolution and what are we talking about and is evolution a valid scientific theory, to which the answer is no, um, is, you know, do these different things work and, and all this. But for tonight, um, because we're doing an overview, we're just going to start with a very basic assumption, which is that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, okay? So we're going to work with that and then assume that God is telling us the truth when he describes the rest of his creation. Um, but interestingly... There's this really cool concept um, that I, somebody pointed out to me just a few weeks ago, actually. And, there's this, and when God creates the world, he creates the sun on the fourth day. So when he says, let there be light, he's not talking, it's not talking about the sun in the sense of you know, the, the gas ball that we know that hangs in the sky today. All right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about light. 
Um, but it says that God created the heavens and the earth. It says the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the water. And then it says God said, let there be light. Now, if we go to the New Testament, Jesus tells us that he's the light of the world. Jesus tells us that he was with the Father all through the beginning, all through creation. So really what we have here right at the very beginning, the very first paragraph of the Bible, is we have the whole trinity. We have God the Father creating the heavens and the earth. We have the Holy Spirit moving over the earth, setting things in motion. And God says, all right, Jesus, turn the light on. Jesus lights it up, right? So it's the trinity working together to establish the creation. So we see here, it's not just, so don't, you know, so just appreciate it. Right? Just appreciate the glory of God, that God in all of his fullness right here is creating the world. So that's the creation. Uh, the fall happens very shortly after the creation. Sin enters the world. Mankind is tempted to disobey God. God gives really two commands. He says, make life happen. Be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, don't make death happen. All right? And mankind violates the second command. And so they're, they're cast out from the presence of God because God has a level of holiness that can't look on sin. And so mankind is cast out and the world is, is hopeless now because there's, you know, we're separated, we're cut off. The creation is destroyed except for the fact that God makes a promise. He says, you know what? Things have been, things have been messed up, but that is not going to be the end of the story. Right? He says, this is not going to be the end. There's going to be a plan. There's a plan in place, all right? So that's, so we get just kind of just a little glimpse, all right? And then we get the history of the world for about 1,500 years, and the world progresses in wickedness. And the Lord says, this is wickedness that is just getting too out of control. I'm going to judge the world. And so he judges the world with a global flood, all right? The flood changes the entire landscape of the world. It reduces the world population to eight people. Um, the first time we see the word grace in the Bible is when it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. All right, so Noah finds grace, not because he's a perfect man, but because he's willing to respond to the Lord in obedience. Okay, so he responds to God in obedience. God says, I'm going to flood the earth. I want you to build an ark, which is basically a giant barge. Noah builds, Noah builds the barge. His family is saved along with all the animals that came with him. All right, and then mankind comes out of the ark. They come out of the flood, and what happens? Then they begin to populate again, and as they populate again, the earth starts to pick up in wickedness again, and, and people are still speaking one language, and they say, you know what? We are not going to spread over the earth like God told us. We are going to stay and unite, and we are going to do our thing our way, and God said, actually, you're not, and so he came down, and he divided their languages, and that's where we see the origin of all the languages in the world. Okay, so this is, you know, Genesis, a lot of people want to turn Genesis into a myth, but if we read Genesis as literal history, all of a sudden we understand so much about the world. We understand why there's languages. We understand why there's pain and suffering. We understand the basic plan for gender and marriage. We understand the basic value of human life. Pretty much every major biblical doctrine that a Christian will ever hold in their life is covered in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All right? So if we can't take it as literal history, then the question is begged, what can we take as, as actual doctrine? Okay, so that's sort of the four main events. And then what happens after that is we begin to see four main individuals. All right? So after the confusion of the world at the Tower of Babel, the, uh, the various people in the world split up. And more or less what you have is the people who were descended. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Descendants of Ham all migrated towards the Africa region. Japheth migrated towards Europe. Shem 
wound up going kind of Middle East, Asia, and then long-term North and South America, okay? And so that's kind of a big picture overview of what you've got. So most of us in the room uh, are, were Japhethites or something like that, all right? Um, descendants of Shem, Shem, the Shemitic people, or the Semites, okay? That's where it comes from. So we're still, that word is still a reference to Noah's literal son. We're still discussing it today. But we begin to see from Shem's descendants, we see this guy named Abram. And we get to focus in, and we start to zero in on this guy named Abraham. And basically what we're going to get is four successive generations that the Lord is working through. And he's going to say, all right, um, basically uh, we've got Abraham, we've got the story of his life, we have the story of his son Isaac, we have the story of Isaac's son Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. Each one of his 12 sons is going to become the figurehead for a tribe as they... Uh, as they multiply, all right? So they become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what you have is basically now the story of the founding of the nation of Israel, all right? So in really uh, what's an introduction to the book of Exodus, which we'll get to next week, the author, Moses, has just given us an entire introduction into how the nation of Israel came into existence, right? And so that's, so as it stands, as a history book, Genesis is incredibly significant. But as it stands also, Genesis is not just significant in that sense, but it also gives us these incredible prophecies and pictures of what's coming. Because Genesis introduces us to the fall of mankind, but it also is going to introduce us to the restoration of mankind. All right, And we see it a couple different times. Uh, actually, we see it several different times, but we're not going to be able to hit them all tonight. So just a few. All right, In the Garden of Eden when God is meeting out punishment and, and basically explaining, here's what happens as a consequence of your sin. God talks to the serpent who deceived Eve. And he said, uh, from her seed is going to come someone who's going to crush your head, but you're going to bruise his heel. All right? So there's a prophecy right there that the devil is going to get his head crushed. But along the way, the person who does the crushing is going to get his heel bruised. And, and it's, a, it's a picture uh, of like, you know, he's going to be really hurt. But it's not nearly as bad as getting your head crushed, right? And so it's, it's the initial prophecy about there's going to be a Messiah coming, right? What happened to Jesus when he came? His heel was bruised, uh, literally and figuratively, right? I mean, the spike of the cross would have wound up going right through his heel. But um, along the way, in a figurative sense, he was, he was bruised, right? He died, but that wasn't the end of his story, right? He resurrected. What happened to Satan? Death was crushed. Death has been defeated, all right? So that's kind of an initial prophecy. We see other prophecies uh, that the Lord gives to Abraham, where the Lord says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And uh, it's a prophecy that from you is going to come someone who's going to bless all the nations of the earth, all right? But as we're looking specifically tonight, I wanted us to just flip over to Genesis chapter 49. And um, I just want us to look at a couple just brief prophecies that I think might help just give us a little bit of a, of, a, of a picture of sort of what prophecy looks like in the Bible as the Lord's giving it out. So in Genesis chapter 49, the guy Jacob uh, is dying and he calls his 12 sons to him. And he pronounces a blessing over each one of them. And the blessings that he pronounced wind up becoming a prophecy. All right? So um, in 
chapter, so 49, um, in chapter 5, he starts talking about his sons, Simeon and Levi. And they had been the, very, the two most violent brothers in the entire family. Um, and so in verse 7, he says, Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Jacob, as he's dying, says Simeon and Levi are never really going to have a tribal inheritance amongst their brothers. And interestingly, that completely came to pass. When the Israelites are going to go into the land that will become known as the nation of Israel, the tribe of Simeon at that point is so small that they're really just absorbed into the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Levi it becomes the priest. Uh, we'll get into that over the next couple of weeks as we get into Exodus and Leviticus. The tribe of Levi gets called and set apart as the priest of God. And God says, because you're the priest, I'm your inheritance. You don't need a tribal inheritance. You have me. And so the Levites wound up living all over the nation of Israel in all these different pockets. But it comes about in part as a direct result of this prophecy. But going on in verse 8, he says, Judah. So who's he talking to here? Judah, right. Judah's one of the 12 sons. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is the lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? So as a tribe, he's giving Judah this prophecy, you're going to be the big tribe, right? You're going to be the dominant tribe. You're going to be sort of the one. And historically, as the nation of Israel has panned out, the tribe of Judah has always been the largest, the most dominant, the most influential. It's from the tribe of Judah that David came and all the successive lines of kings in, in Judah's history. All right, um, But then, verse 10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of his people. So, this can sound a little funny, but um, Shiloh is more or less another word for the Messiah. Okay, So Jacob, as he's dying, says the scepter is not going to depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Or another way to translate that would be until he comes to whom it belongs. So what's a scepter? Okay, A scepter is something that a king holds. It's the sign of power. right? If you want to go, if it's easiest in your mind, go to something like a medieval kingdom where the king would have the sword and he can either chop off your head with it or he can make you a knight, right? It's the symbol of power that I have the authority right now of life and death. And as a kingship, it's, it's a symbol that I can take your life. And so the Jewish people had a, uh, in their legal system for capital punishment, they would stone people. They would throw stones at you until you died, all right? And over time, as the nation of Israel was conquered by different people, uh, when the Romans came in, the Romans let them continue that for religious reasons. The Romans said, you know what? Basically, it's just going to be politically smoothest. If you have a religious problem with somebody, you can stone them. That's great. We won't ask too many questions. All right? Until right about 30 AD. And Rome said, you know what? This is getting a little bit out of hand. Uh, you no longer have the right to stone anybody. So what happened right there? Israel or as it was result, by and large at that point, the nation of Judah really lost the scepter. They lost the right. They lost the privilege and authority of capital punishment. The scepter departed from Judah. Why? Because Shiloh came. Because the Messiah came. Okay, so it's a prophecy, right? So I want us to just kind of cover that to look and say, okay, wait a second. So this is what we're talking about. This is when God says, hey, 
There's something coming. Here's a sign of the coming, all right? When the scepter departs, it's because, why? Judah didn't need to be in charge of capital punishment anymore. Judah did not need to mete out religious justice because Jesus came to take care of all the religious justice that's needed, right? We do not need, as a church, to stone people who disagree with us. We can smile and say, you know what? God bless you. Do your thing. We'll let the Lord take care of it. Okay? So that's a prophecy. As we're wrapping up, because we're kind of basically coming up to end of time for the night, I want us to look briefly at, um, at a type, if we can. And so in Genesis chapter 22, and, and we'll sort of park here for the rest of the night, um, it's a story that's familiar to some of us, maybe not so much to others of us, and that's fine. Um, but in Genesis 22, God is talking to Abraham, who's you know, the first of those four guys that we talked about. And he says, Abraham. And Abraham says, yeah. God says, all right, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. And um, Abraham says, okay. And, and we could go into a lot. God is not condoning child sacrifice. He's not even really asking for child sacrifice. But what he's doing is he's setting up a type. And along the way, he's testing Abraham's devotion to him. So Abraham and Isaac go on a three-day trip. They are walking along, and Isaac says, um, Isaac's carrying the wood for the fire. Abraham's got some of the other stuff. Isaac says, hey, Dad, I got a question. Abraham says, okay. He says, all right, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. We've got the knife. Where's the sacrifice? Because you told me we're coming out here to sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? And in chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So, uh, so what happens? So they go up to the mountain. Abraham ties Isaac down to the altar. He's getting ready to carry out the command of the Lord because he knows that God can raise Isaac back to life after this. And the angel of the Lord stops Abraham and says, stop right there. Don't go through with it. You did everything the Lord wanted. And the Lord, and now I know that you love me more than you love Isaac. Isaac is not an idol in your life. And then Abraham sees a ram caught in a bush. Abraham goes and sacrifices the lamb. The ram. Abraham and Isaac go back home. Okay, but what is it? It's a type. And here's why. Okay, so, um, so what happens here is Isaac becomes a type of Jesus Christ. So they're walking out to this hill. They will actually walk to the same geographic location where Jesus would be crucified. Isaac is carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus carried the cross on his own back. All right? Isaac, uh, at this point, would be a young, strong guy. Abraham is a very old guy. Isaac is a willing sacrifice. He doesn't fight his dad. He lets his dad do this. He's willing to trust that the father has a plan. Jesus you know, Jesus told his disciples, I could call down 12 legions of angels to defend myself, but I don't need to because I trust that my father has a plan. Um, Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac because Abraham had already been counted righteous by God. All right? So the father didn't have to take on the son, this, the father didn't have to sacrifice the son for his own sins. God the father did not allow Jesus to be sacrificed for God's sins, right? So in that same sense, it stops there. But God the Father allowed Jesus to be sacrificed for our sins. Okay, but lastly and interestingly, um, as they're going up, Abraham says, the Lord's going to provide the lamb. 
And then they look, and it says, Abraham raised his eyes after the angel says, don't sacrifice your son. And behold, there's a ram caught in the thickets. Now, a lamb and a ram are not the same thing. So, in some senses, Abraham's words are completely fulfilled right here. But in another sense, there's this unfulfilled part. It's like there's this picture, and then there's this little part, that, there's this little thread that just hangs out there for a couple thousand years until Jesus fulfills it. Because Jesus is the final lamb, right? It's the two types, Isaac and Jesus, and they tie together right at the very end. Because the Lord provided himself the lamb, right? And he, in some ways, did it right in that moment, but he fulf- completely fulfilled it in, in Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's not a prophecy, but it's a type. And, and as we look at that, we can see, okay, so God is working and he's establishing, you know, pictures and ideas by which people can relate to him, right? Which I find to be incredibly encouraging because that means in our lives, God is using us. He's using our lives, our testimonies to give pictures and ideas by which people can relate to him. Okay, the Gospels in the New Testament talk about marriage. Marriage is completely the picture of how Jesus Christ is interacting with the church. So if you're married, you are living a type, right? And if if you're single, you're living a different kind of type. We're all living these types. We all get the privilege of that, all right? But as we're looking at Genesis and just wrapping up sort of the final thought, Genesis is full of the promises of God, all right? God is making promises to everybody. God makes promises to Adam. He makes promises to Noah. He makes promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He makes promises to Joseph, I think. Top of my head, I can't remember. He makes promises to all kinds of people, all right? And from the vantage point, we get to look back 4,000 years later, well, 3,500 years later, and say, he kept them all, right? So as, as we are reading... Uh, as we're looking and asking the Holy Spirit, you know, what do you want to say to me? What are you speaking to me? How can I learn from your word? Well, one thing to just keep in mind from the book of Genesis is God has kept all of his promises. So what are the promises God has made to you? What are the promises God is making to us through his word? Because he's kept them. He's kept them. And so we can trust that he's going to continue keeping them. All right? So that is the book of Genesis in a nutshell. All right? Uh, next week... It's the book of Exodus, and it's going to be uh, super exciting because Jesus is all through the book of Exodus, right? And so we're going to keep seeing Jesus Christ throughout the Word of God, and it's going to be exciting. Lord, we, uh, we pray that your Word would continue to transform us. We pray that you would uh, just, just guide us into it. God, give us a hunger for it and a desire to, to know you more through it. We pray that you would... Uh, Just have your way in our hearts and our lives. Use us for your kingdom and your glory. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness uh, to the men and women of the past. And we look forward to watching your faithfulness in our own lives. So please have your way with us. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.